Join Dr. Robert McGorney for Outliving Cancer, the podcast that provides each patient the tools and information they need to outlive their cancer. This is Dr. Robert McGorney with Outliving Cancer. I recently uh, introduced a topic of rare cancers, rare tumors. And in so doing, I examined the mechanisms by which we treat these diseases. How do we select drugs? How do we identify the best treatment when there's no literature, there's no guideline, there's no information, there's nothing? It's a, it's a vacuum. And the rarer the tumor, the harder it gets. So today, I'm uh, delighted to have a, a guest, and I'm going to be introducing a particularly uncommon cancer, about as uncommon as they get, and this cancer is known as fibrolamellar cancer. It's a very rare form of liver cancer. Now, this cancer was originally described by a Dr. Edmondson in 1956, and it turns out that it constitutes somewhere between 1 and 5% of all liver cancers. It's almost uniformly found in adolescents and young adults. And the treatment of choice, when it is diagnosed by histologic examination, appearance under the microscope, the treatment of choice is surgery so long as it remains localized. There are certain features of the disease, expresses C7 and CD68, which are proteins on the cell. And appropriately managed and early management can provide survivals in the range of 40%, which is not bad. But the problem is when this cancer spreads, when this cancer gets beyond the confines of the liver, when that occurs, the tumors turn out to be pretty resistant to conventional chemotherapies. We don't really have good treatments for this disease. Now, there are certain features of the cancers that are being examined very, very intensively, and one of the diagnostic findings is a specific chromosomal aberrancy, a, a broken gene. Chromosome 19 suffers a deletion, a little chunk of the DNA comes out, and it puts together two other pieces of the DNA. One is the DNA JB1, and it puts that together with another piece of DNA called PRKACA. The two genetic elements, one is related to protein folding called HSP40, and the other one is related to an intracellular signaling pathway called protein kinase A. And when those two get together and start driving, the cancers grow and spread under the control of a whole host of genetic elements. One's called MYC for MYC, another one's WNT for WINT, and there's a lot of other processes that go forward. The treatments remain uncertain. Folfox, 5-FU, alpha interferon, a variety of treatments have been utilized. Immune therapy has not proven very effective. And so this disease is so rare that in my career, I may have seen one case. I mean, it's, it's just everyone knows about it and no one ever sees it. So it was of interest that in October of 2019, I received a phone call, quite out of the blue, unsolicited phone call from, from a gentleman who explained that his own experience with this disease had been a, a real eye-opener and that, that he had uh, confronted the disease in his own son and that he was now uh, the managing director and founder of an organization that was designed to advance our understanding of the disease, to support research in this disease, and to support patients and families who were diagnosed with this rare tumor. Once uh, I was contacted by uh, Tom Stockwell, the founder of the Fibrofighters Group, once I, I 
heard from him and began to ponder what he was doing, uh, I was only too interested in meeting him. And luckily, he's based in Temecula, California, where he runs the Fiber Fighters Foundation. And Tom came in to see us at our laboratory in Long Beach. We had a really long and interesting discussion of, of his work. And it's been a really great collaboration, and, and it's growing in its focus. So without any further ado, I'd, I'd like to introduce, we have the, the pleasure of having Tom Stockwell with us today. And I'm going to introduce Tom, and I'm going to let him tell his story and a little bit about his interests, and then we'll, we'll get back together and talk about what we're doing together. So, so with that, uh, Tom, I'd like to introduce yourself and, and tell us a little about your experience. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Nagurney, for inviting me you know, to the podcast this morning and, you know, and of course, including Fibro Fighters Foundation. Um, we obviously have a lot to discuss, you know, every patient does in their journey. So I'll try to be as concise as possible. In, in our case, Robert, our son, at about the age of 12, ended up uh, with something they, they basically diagnosed it as acid reflux. Well, you know, that was unusual for a 12-year-old child. And so we tried to do different tests and things, and it, that's all they did was just provide a medicine. And what we ended up doing is um, after a few extra or a few years had passed, we had Robert um, go to a specialist. And they scoped him. They did all sorts of things. And again, nothing was found. So go forward to the age of 18, he had graduated high school, he was enrolled in college, uh, he was beginning a new job in Target, he was absolutely at the top of his life. But then in October of 2013, he could not be a flu bug. And we thought, geez, that's funny. But then at the same time, he was busy working and so forth. So we didn't make a whole lot of it. Several months had passed, the, the flu bug would still not, uh, you know, uh, leave him. And so he kept trying to fight it off. But then in December of that same year, he ended up getting a distended belly, nauseous, constipated. Um, he was uh, getting night sweats at that point. So we went back to the doctor for the third time. And at this point, the doctor finally ordered an ultrasound. So we were sitting there, we went, ran over, got the uh, ultrasound, and Robert uh, was so excited. He had just gotten a Discover card. It was funny, I'll never forget it. He got the Discover card and he wanted to take me to lunch. So we went to lunch and it was his treat. And by the time we had gotten halfway through the meal, they called us with an emergency call saying we had to go to the ER immediately. Um, and he needed to get a complete workup, CT scan and everything. So it ended up that his tumor uh, was 26 centimeters at that point on the left side of the left lobe of his liver. And he ended up uh, immediately, the local ER had no idea of how to treat this. So we referred to a uh, medical center uh, in Irvine, uh, in UCI. And so we went there and they completed uh, more tests, more CT, and they did a biopsy. Well, they came back, I'll never forget this day, it was uh, January 13, 2014. They entered the room, very somber, silent, and they said, uh, well, we have some bad news to tell you. 
Robert has stage four fibrillomellar hepatocellular carcinoma. And we were, well, what do you mean? You know, we didn't know that. That was a foreign language to us. And they basically at that point said he has maybe six to eight weeks. We recommend palliative care. There's nothing we really can do for him. He's not surgical. And so we were all devastated. It, it literally, we couldn't move off our chairs. And we must have been in that room for what seemed like a lifetime. And, and so we went home, not really knowing the first steps of what to do or, or, or what to, you know, how to proceed. So after about a week or so, we, we were able to get our act together. And Robert's a true fighter. And I know him to not let go of things. And so as a parent, there, there's no way in the world you're going to accept that. So there, we just weren't going to. So I reached out to multiple centers, uh, spoke with many different specialists around the country, and I was finally able to connect with uh, UCLA. And after being on hold for over 45 minutes, um, they finally came back and said, we'll see him tomorrow on an emergency basis. So that's what we did. We had a little bit of a ray of hope. And so by the time we had left there, Robert had already declined so much that he became uh, hepatic encephalopic. Uh, so it had set in. His mind was not nearly what our, our son's mind was because he was extremely intelligent. And we were driving home and he tried to open the car door while we were moving 70 miles an hour on the freeway. And so we knew that there was a serious issue. We went back to the emergency room at UCLA where he was evaluated over a 12 hour period of time. Um, because it was so advanced, his ammonia levels were beyond 500, which is really 10 times uh, the amount of normal, you know, the normal amount of uh, ammonia that should be in your blood. And so uh, they put him into a induced coma where he laid for, oh gosh, probably 24 to 48 hours of them trying to treat, uh, treat that and bring the ammonia levels down. He was immediately put, he went from, I remember that night, it was a Saturday night, the chief of surgery came in and said, we took Robert from number 1550 on a transplant list to number one overnight. And at the same time, which was unbeknownst to us at the time, a young man tragically lost his life suffering a seizure up in Northern California where he drove off of a, off of a roadway and he had passed away and we didn't know at the time but that that particular situation was critical to our son's survival so what happened was the chief of surgery got with his all-star team um, robert's tumor had not only been involved the the liver but it also had metastasized into the right atrium of his heart and so they ended up with their thoracic specialist, uh, heart surgeon, and of course the chief of surgery, transplant surgeon, and they began, uh, they, they had scheduled a um, surgery for President's Day 2014, which was very odd. The hospital was basically, there was nobody there except this wonderful group of all-star uh, clinicians who were willing to save Robert's life. And so 12 hours later through that entire surgical process, 
Um, he, he ended up pulling through. Um, it was successfully done. The tumor was removed from the right atrium of his heart. He ended up, this young man who had tragically lost his life, he ended up with his liver, which he proudly named Champ. <laughs> and so, um, so that's what happened. Um, and Robert couldn't believe it because when he was waking up after that procedure and then several days later, he reached down and he was touching his belly. And he was like, he, he couldn't believe it because he remembered his belly. He was almost, it looked like he was four or five months pregnant. And he was reaching down and he looked at me and he said, Daddy, it's gone. And, and it was just the most uplifting, wonderful thing to hear. So, um, so 28 days later, he leads UCLA after, you know, a pretty grueling recovery period with a lot of ups and downs, which of course were, was to be expected with all the traumatic surgery that he had went through. And so that began our new course, but it, it, it provided the ability to continue our fight. So unfortunately, Robert's disease had spread into his lungs and he had a very aggressive form of fibrolamella. And we see different um, levels of this disease where some is very indolent for many where they will go literally, um, you know, years upon years without any recurrences. For Robert, it, would, it had grown extremely fast. So again, at that point, I said, I have to really do a deep dive into this because because of the rarity of this cancer, nobody really could speak to it. And I needed to do everything I possibly could do to learn everything and help clinicians along the way. So I left my job um, and made Robert and Fibrolamellar my full-time job. And that's what I did for the following three years, um, trying to do everything, find every treatment we possibly could. Um, for Robert and he had let's see after after that initial surgery he had four subsequent uh, resections he had um, multiple IR procedures um, he was on various forms of chemo treatment most of which the doctors were basically it, it was equivalent to you know pin the tail on the donkey and just trying to find the right combination of drugs. And unfortunately, the standard of care was non-existent for this disease. And we had various good oncologists. We, we went through probably nine over that three-year period of time. Um, but unfortunately for Robert, the disease continued to spread and to get uh, more difficult to treat. He ended up with a small, well, it wasn't small really, six centimeter tumor in the center of his head. He ended up with multiple lesions up and down his spinal column. Um, he ended up, uh, you know, uh, pulmonary arteries were affected. So he had widespread disease. All through this process, Robert kept a positive attitude as best as he possibly could. He always was reaching out, helping others, which we, we found to be absolutely amazing. He would, uh, he developed a transplant uh, page on Facebook for uh, UCLA. 
He reached out to groups on the fibrolamellar of the World Unite Facebook page, helping patients who were facing similar type situations. But unfortunately, on March 5th of 2017, our son uh, peacefully passed away uh, with his two older sisters, his mom and myself. Uh, Robert was an amazing young man, sitting, uh, you know, doing all these these things, and um, uh, he was a computer wizard. He was extremely compassionate, intelligent, loved his friends and family, and uh, he and I would talk quite a bit. He said to me, and I said to him, Robert, this is my destiny. This is what I'm going to do until the day I die, which is take care of fibromyalgia patients and try to do whatever we can to help, um, you know, overcome this disease and find people who are willing to uh, join us in this uh, battle. So what ended up happening three months after that, I became very involved uh, with this cancer. I ended up uh, joining the Fibrolamellar Cancer Foundation as a patient advocate. I attended my first ASCO conference. That was June of 2017, so about three months after Robert's passing. Uh, I ended up officially joining the, the Fibrolamellar Cancer Foundation in October of 2017, where I ended up heading up a tissue collection program we began many, many initiatives, and I was able to um, collect and collaborate with a lot of researchers, clinicians, and meeting people who had an interest and were working on this disease already. So, so that's what I had done. I dedicated that for my life for those two years, uh, trying to help fibrolamellar patients, advocating for them any way I possibly could. But the Fibrolamellar Cancer Foundation, while a wonderful organization, the issue was that they were working on edge research, translational research, and unfortunately, that wasn't fast enough for me. And I was talking with patients who were all in desperate need. They had young children, they had loved ones that they needed to have, uh, you know, some type of immediate help, immediate answers, and learning the nuances of this disease that really my wife and I and family, we were all in the dark, and we had to learn everything the hard way. And one of, the, one of my goals was to not have families have to go through what we did and so we tried to fast track many things that we had learned so that we could share that information with them so being that the foundation was more research oriented not quite as patient centric if you will um, back and it was about the time I was reaching out to you I had resigned my position there uh, with uh, the Fibrolamellar Cancer Foundation. And that in 2019 is when I had reached out to you because of your program dealing with uh, the functional profiling of tumor tissue and being able to isolate perhaps uh, better treatments than what was available, which was very limited. And the standard of care we knew was not working. 
And so that's when I began uh, our initial conversation, which was, uh, as, as you pointed out earlier, um, fantastic. There was a connection there. Uh, I always wonder, and I still do to this day, if your name, Robert, had anything to do with this. But <laughs> I, I must say that, uh, that it was a, a wonderful beginning for us. And, and in 2020, February of 2020, I officially began Fiber Fighters Foundation, becoming a 501c3. Um, this way, our goals with Fiber Fighters is obviously it's a nonprofit, it's education and advocacy organization, and we're dedicated to helping patients with fibrolamellar cancer. I think find, evaluate, and access new treatment options and research opportunities. So I think I think that's really really um, critical. Um, well, you know, Tom, I yeah, I, I just wanted to thank you for your really uh, uh, such a, a terrible but also uplifting story that that you confronted this this horrific disease and it is a horrific disease and ha, you know as the father of two boys myself uh, two now early 20s it's only it's beyond imagination for me to have to confront something like this and I and I so appreciate your telling your story and and uh, I I think that you exemplify exactly what we were talking about when it comes to rare tumors. I mean, this is about as rare a tumor as there is. I mean, I think, I think in the literature today, there are somewhere between 50 and 200 new cases a year in the United States, which makes it, I mean, one case per state. I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily rare. And so you exemplify precisely what the problem is. There isn't any answer. There isn't any guideline. And that was part of the reason that I was so enthusiastic and so intrigued when you called me in October. As you'll recall, it was just a cold call. You just call up and said, hey, I've got this idea and interest, and would you be willing to talk? And I and I spent pretty long time. To, I think we probably spent a couple of hours talking about what you're doing and what your interests are and what your experience has been, and then we convened a meeting. And so, um, you know, I think you were the the perfect example of needing a better solution to an unmet need. We we need a way out of this sort of problem. So, with that as a backdrop, and you as a perfect example of how this kind of data could help, um, it's interesting that you have uh, helped bring patients uh, with this diagnosis to us. And and you can just mention a little bit about your reach because you've got contacts all over the country, even all over the world. So I think we've now done somewhere between 18 and 20 patients with fibrolamellar cancer uh, from Johns Hopkins and from Australia and from from centers all over the country, from New York and, and, and uh, Chicago, and your colleagues and collaborators and I, I, I look upon this as a unique opportunity to make discoveries where, where is, it's, it's a completely desolate landscape of options. It would, patients have no idea. So you were kind enough to introduce, you might just mention that, that you had some contact with Dr. Young Ko at Johns Hopkins. I don't know quite how you met her originally. Uh, the 
way that relationship began was when we were trying every possible option. Um, we were considering a, a compound that she had worked with and that had helped save a young man in Europe. And so, you know, we were groping at all ideas. And interestingly, we never really fell out of touch. And we always kind of would, would kind of go in and out. And uh, she really, in her heart, is dedicated to fibrolamellar based on that treatment. And it was a successful treatment that they had taken a patient with, again, stage four disease and turned his life around. He was literally in hospice when they had uh, helped this young man. And so, so that's how that relationship had began. And ever, you know, ever since that point in time, we've kind of touched base. And she, interestingly, had touched base with me just about uh, six to eight months ago. And we thought, wow, what, what great timing. And that it would be wonderful to be able to perhaps test this on some of the assays that, that, that you and your team and I have helped kind of put together to where we've really focused on drugs and things that we feel very strongly that can work for this rare cancer, um, but also opened up the playbook a little bit with regards to maybe some supplements and some other things that may not be in the typical realm of somebody even looking at. And so the open-mindedness of your lab and your approach is is what has really drawn that interest and i and i think it's like you said almost 20 samples and we have seen some very very interesting results thus far and, and we've only really been limited by the two two factors which is one the rarity of the disease finding people early enough when they're doing their resection because we do require the live tumor tissue. And so that, that part of it is important. And then again, the quality of the tissue, which right now we're in the process of educating surgeons, the main surgeons who really are dedicated to our fibrolamellar community so that they understand the importance of good quality tissue samples coming to us because uh, you know, you have educated me in the importance of the quality of the tissue because, you know, I, I know we want to help all these young people um, afflicted with this cancer. And the only way we're able to do that is get the best possible sample so that your lab, being a CLIA lab, can actually report results back. And I must say, Dr. Kent at Rush University, uh, the team there has been extremely supportive, probably. I, I would have to say 60% of our tumor samples have come from Rush University. And Dr. Kent is very open and receptive. And in this collaborative effort, he has reached out now to other oncologists, other surgeons, and we're in the process of selling the importance of this idea of how it potentially could be benefiting, you know, benefiting our community. And, and so, yeah, we're, we're very excited. We're, we're really pleased with the new uh, assay that we recently put together. And I think, based on our conversation, uh, I think it's pretty much ready to go at this point, correct? 
Yeah, um, we just to give an overview of what we're working on, uh, once you and I had a chance to sit down and go over what we do and what you're interested in, we crafted a very novel, very novel drug combinations that were uh, uh, based on the known action of the uh, genetic basis of the disease, some of the experience of other investigators. So we have a very interesting collection of classic cytotoxic drugs, and the standards of care in this disease include things like, oh, gemcitabine and oxaliplatin, 5-FU, alpha interferon. But you've also brought to the table drugs that have very unique mechanisms of action, like carbonic anhydrase 9 inhibitors, and, and quercetin, which is a biological product, a, a natural product extract. But also, we've forged uh, uh, combinations of uh, signal transduction inhibitors and targeted agents and, and novel therapies. And the beauty of this is that where there's no right way to do this, we have the luxury of testing 20 or 30 things at a time so that we can do in a test tube what no one can do in a clinical setting because no one sees 20 or 30 of these patients. There's no chance to do those things. So we can do in a single patient's tissue what would be the equivalent of 20 or 30 clinical trials. It's, it's just a unique opportunity. And, and I, I must say that this is one of our most favorite projects because I think that if we do this right, we could ultimately have a major impact on this disease. We could change the very history of this disease. And, and the reason that I think that's true and the reason this is a uniquely good opportunity, you may know historically that some of the worst cancers, some of the diseases that are the most difficult to treat, prove to be the most simple to treat when the secret uh, uh, basis of the disease becomes true. And, and, and one such disease was a disease called acute promyelocytic leukemia. Acute promyelocytic leukemia was considered the most difficult acute leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, to treat. There were entire institutions dedicated to treating it, and, and the, the, the uh, morbidity, mortality was extraordinary. And, and investigators in Harbin, uh, China, made an interesting observation that all transretinoic acid was active in the disease. And overnight, overnight, the worst leukemia became the best. In fact, anytime someone was diagnosed with leukemia, they immediately wanted to find out if they had the 1517 translocation because that was the one for the all transretinoic acid, which is a vitamin A derivative. And then the second observation that these guys made was that arsenic trioxide with or without the all transretinoic acid could provide benefit. And these were not classic cytotoxic drugs. And today, that's probably the easiest acute myeloid leukemia to treat. And, and I had a somewhat similar experience when I was at Scripps Clinic. I was, I was intrigued by a drug called chlorodeoxyadenosine. The disease hairy cell leukemia was deemed untreatable at the time, untreatable. And fooling around the laboratory with this compound, chlorodeoxyadenosine, I made some observations that led to what today is the curative therapy for that disease, the worst form of lymphoma became the best form of lymphoma. And so in that context, working with you, forging these really novel, and I must admit, I mean, the things that you've brought to us in your laundry list of interests have been extraordinary because these are compounds and things we would normally not test, we would normally not think of. And in fact, we've included all transretinoic acid and we're getting some signals for that. So I think this is, it's just an amazing opportunity to to take this tragedy that you experience, this 
heartbreaking story. And I, again, I really appreciate your telling it and, and letting people know about how, how terrible it was. But, but that, that from that might come a really great story, a really great breakthrough, and, and maybe we'll save the life of someone else's son or daughter. And, and, and I really appreciate your, your candor and, and your willingness to tell your story. Well, absolutely, Dr. Nagurney. You and your team have been outstanding to work with. We see the opportunity as well. And even though it is an extremely rare cancer, we believe that um, a lot of great things, as you mentioned, can come from what we discovered that may very well apply to other cancers. Um, so so we're, we're very hopeful. We, we want to try and get as many uh, people to contribute their live tumor tissue to this program um, for their benefit as well as the benefit of the entire community. So I cannot thank you and your team enough uh, and thank you for including me today to, to tell Robert's story. It's always very emotional for me and uh, you know it, it doesn't get ever, I gotta say it never gets easier, that's mm. for sure. Well, again, um, I think this is the perfect example of how we apply smart uh, approaches to, to difficult problems. I think that fibrolamellar is an extraordinary opportunity for us. I really appreciate you've, you've introduced us to some of your colleagues. Dr. Kent, as you mentioned, Dr. Shadi, an extraordinarily good surgeon at Rush. They've been wonderful allies and they've done everything to help us. And interestingly, we've gotten good samples from, from Pittsburgh, from Australia. So, so the opportunity is there for us to, to do something. I'm really looking forward to seeing where this project goes. And, and once again, I really thank you and, and thank our audience for their attention. Um, this is a great, a great story in the making. Thank you again, Tom, for joining us. Thank you, Thank you.